Hey, it's Luke. Something really important, exciting even, happened last week, and almost no one noticed. I almost didn't notice, to be honest. The story broke early in the week. It actually was announced by the mayor's office on January 13th. The spokesman didn't report about it until the next Monday, and I didn't notice until Thursday when somebody pointed it out to me. Uh, shout out to the writer, Daniel Walters. The city of Spokane last week named a new planning director. His name is Spencer Gardner. <laughs> I'm going to guess that a few of you are thinking... Baumgarten and I have a very different definition of exciting, but I'll convince you of that in a second. So let's start with the first thing I said, why it's really important. It's important because city planners do a whole bunch of the mostly invisible work of understanding and solving problems within a city. Those bike lanes don't just appear. Land use decisions don't just happen or happen arbitrarily. Well, I mean, sometimes they happen arbitrarily. The point of a planner is so that they don't happen arbitrarily. Dense, diverse, mixed-use neighborhoods are planned for. Believe it or not, suburban sprawl is planned for, too. These are all choices we make about how we want to live, and in the context of a municipal government, some of the people who make those decisions are elected, many more are civil servants, either appointed or just hired. So you can yell at your council person about needing a stop sign on your block, but if it actually happens, thank a planner. All right, cool. So hopefully I've convinced you that it's important. But again, why is it exciting? Well, two things, smart guy. One, we haven't had a permanent planning director since March of 2018, which is a very long time in the life of a city, especially a city undergoing change as rapidly as we have since, oh, say, March of 2018, <laughs> and honestly, a couple years before that, as you'll hear in this interview. So that's excitement number one. Excitement number two is we have tapes. We have writings. Many people in bureaucratic positions don't spend a lot of time publicly discussing their ideas, but this guy has. Spencer Gardner is a known quantity. And not only is he a known quantity in the world, in that you can Google him, he's a known quantity to me personally, and soon he's going to be a known quantity to you. And look, I'm going to just say it. The quantity so far is good. Both the, qu <laughs> both the quantity of the knownness and the quality of what we know he has written extensively. The conversation I am long-windedly leading up to is pretty thorough. You can do some reading and some listening and come away having a pretty good sense of our new planning director's philosophy of planning. And again, in my opinion, the ideas are good. They're smart and they're thoughtful. And they are, to my mind, at least in theory, we'll see how he does once he's actually in the office, compassionate. Gardner was in private practice before taking the city job, though he helped draft the city's recent sustainability action plan. Spencer and his family moved here, you are going to learn because they really left Spokane's pre-war grid, the street grid. It's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard, but kind of perfect for a planner. Such is the depth of his love for well-planned places. And here at Range, we like people who have clear, cogent philosophies, even if we don't always agree with them. Although, in this interview, I found myself nodding my head affirmatively more than not. So maybe there's a third excitement here. This interview is from December 2019. But Luke, you say, range began in April 2020, to which I reply, that's an exquisite memory you have. Thank you for being uh, as up on range history as you are. And it's true that this interview was not conducted for range. It was conducted for a totally different, long defunct podcast called Fellow Friends. It was a podcast about a co-working space where Spencer and I both happened to work. This is my very first audio interview, the first interview created for audio, and one of a million little nudges along the path to starting range itself. So first of all, it's my first time, be gentle. 
but it also means that for a small subset of range heads, let's call them Baumgarten completists, um, that might just be my mom and maybe not even her. I don't know if there's anybody in that subset. Consider this the basement tape, the bootleg, to the media empire you find before you. We're, we're already working on scheduling Spencer for a range interview, but we wanted to throw this up too. He's speaking in a different capacity here and pretty freely. It will be interesting to see how his views have changed in the two years we've just lived through, because how could they not? And also interesting to see if the, the lens of a new job has him thinking in new ways about this thing that he loves doing, which is so vital to the way we all live, whether most of us realize it or not. Does that sound fun? Yeah, it does to me too. So yeah, blow the dirt off your 8-track. My 2019 interview with Spencer Gardner, originally from fellow friends, but now forever ensconced in the Range Archives. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Welcome to Fellow Friends, episode 12, everybody. Luke Baumgarten solo for the second time. You know, I was thinking, this is kind of like that unexpectedly awesome toy you find in the Cracker Jack box of your podcast feed. You know, you're just eating eating away, burning through that content, and you're like, hey, I didn't expect this, but I'm, I'm really glad it's a Luke solo app. That's what I assume everybody's saying anyways, to, uh, to prop up my fragile ego. Um, I just wanted to briefly intro what's kind of a long but incredibly awesome conversation with Spencer Gardner. Spencer's a transit planner with Tool Design. It's a uh, company based in Madison, Wisconsin, where Spencer used to live. But Spencer, uh, for the last 18 months or so, has lived in Spokane and works out of Fellow. You'll hear this in the episode, but when he and his family were looking for a new city to call home, he literally used Google Maps to look at the street grid of a bunch of cities, trying to figure, like, looking for some very specific things. And, uh, and out of that super nerdy planner search, they picked Spokane. Uh, so in the 18 months since he's arrived, he spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the city he found when he got here. And we have very much been the beneficiaries of that. So I wanted to talk to him because city planning is the m- almost invisible thing that massively impacts all of our lives, whether we know it or not. And one of the things Spencer thinks and writes about is how bad planning decisions Americans started making like 80 years ago are still creating catastrophic impacts today. So, you know, the story of Spokane's 2019 housing crisis begins at the end of World War II. So I don't know if two nerds talking about zoning could be called a roller coaster ride, but I found this conversation like insanely thrilling, super informative. Uh, I can't stop thinking about it. So I'm going to shut up now and let you jump on the ride as well. Yeah, it's kind of new to me too, so we're going to have to just uh, trust each other on this, I guess. It's like I'm making out with the microphone. (laughs) Uh, All right. Spencer Gardner, thanks for coming to the pod. Um, Fellow Friends, episode 12. Um, You said that you, or I said I have a million questions for you because I feel like... um, the events of the last year have been leading to this uh, conversation, at least in my mind, with all the stuff that's been going on in our city. 
and you said you're a little bit long-winded, so I thought I'd just cut to the chase and start off. Let's start with your chosen vocation. What's transportation planning, and how does it relate to city planning? Uh, Is it like a subset? Yeah, I think you can think of it as a subset. Okay. I'm, uh, so I, I got my degree in urban planning. Okay. Um, transportation planners are urban planners that think about transportation. Right. I guess that's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Um, in my case, I, the firm that I work for is focused pretty much exclusively on bicycle and pedestrian transportation. Uh-huh. So um, we have engineers and planners who uh, around the country who are um, doing some of the coolest work around on uh, making it safer and more comfortable for people to bike and walk around their cities. Very cool. So when you were sort of thinking, looking at the list of all the things you could do for a career, what drew you to urban planning? Uh, that's a good question. Um, when I, when I finished my undergrad, I had a, I did my undergrad in economics. Okay. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I worked for a credit union for a while. Oh yeah. Um, I was just in their back office doing, um, managing their ATMs and stuff. Um, I, I enjoyed that. I didn't dislike it, but I also started to realize it wasn't really the career move I wanted. Right. Um, I sort of applied to planning school on a, on a, on a whim almost. Oh, fascinating. Um, it wasn't totally on a whim. I did have to take the GRE, I guess. (laughs) Uh, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I knew that I was interested in cities. I'd always been interested in cities. Um, I wouldn't say that SimCity was what hooked me onto cities. I already kind of like, okay, I I was already wired for that. Yeah. But SimCity was definitely a game that I enjoyed a lot growing up. Are we talking like original SimCity, Apple IIe? Yes. Okay. Like old school, um, you know, very uh, coarse. They didn't have a lot of room for nuance, uh, I think, because of limitations on processing power (laughs) more than anything. But um, yeah. The, just the idea of shaping cities and um, and and uh, how cities grow. I mean, like yeah. it. When I was a kid, I remember in the newspaper growing up, they always listed uh, new developments that were proposed and like what was going on around town. And right. that way, I I obsessed over that. It was like the only thing in the paper that I ever read. Um, and uh, I I like would track population numbers every few years. When like, <laughs> how, how much have we grown? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I look back and it's sort of a juvenile way to approach cities, but I, I was right. a kid like that's totally, you know, but that was always, that was always an interest for me. I remember spending and I grew up in a city that's a place that's not a city. It's very, it's a unincorporated part of Spokane County. And for whatever reason we had Sim city on the school computers and I just spent you know, hours and hours and hours sort of imagining and trying being, yeah, trying to make people as happy as possible, you know, little digital people. Uh, and that was, that's fascinating that that's, that maybe might've been a gateway for a lot of people our age. Yeah, um, um, I think so. The irony for me is that, um, the Sim City approach to city building is so backwards from like <laughs> how, how I think cities actually grow and develop right. And how they should grow and develop. Well, it's very top down, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, you know, you're the master planner, right. God type figure who looks down and says, 
well, you know, I really think that we should just bulldoze these houses and put this highway right here because it's going <laughs> to, you know, totally improve everybody's life. Right. Um, that, that style of thinking has caused so many problems in our cities right. um, across the United States and um, not just the United States. We're not, uh, we're not unique in, in our stupidity sometimes. But, right. But, man, we went whole hog on that, and it, it really... It's not. It's not the right way to do it. Well, and we had a lot of land to play with getting it wrong for a lot of decades, right? That's true. Yeah. Um, so, talk to me then about your um, your in brief. We're, we're going to dive into this in pretty deep detail, but like, what is your sort of like planning philosophy? Hmm. You mentioned, you know, how plan. So, it's. I'm guessing it's not the top-down, godlike SimCity version of yeah planning. Um. My, if I had to, um, are you familiar with the term economic gardening? No, but it's pretty evocative. Okay. Uh, economic gardening is a movement that uh, approaches economic development the way that a gardener approaches their garden. Okay. Uh, I think most economic development, I promise this is going somewhere. I think most economic development. Uh, this is a podcast. It doesn't actually have to go anywhere. That's true. <laughs> We've got hours. I hope your listeners are uh, cozy by the fire. Yeah. Looking forward to me talking for a few hours. Uh, so economic development in the way that it occurs in a lot of places is uh, it is sort of that top-down approach. Right. Um, let me give you an example, a local example. Okay. I hope I'm not, uh, well. No, I love it's it. It's a podcast. Nobody's listening anyway, right? <laughs> right. Um, I have very strong reservations about what's going on on the West Plains. Mm-hmm. Um, even the Amazon facility. I know right. there's a lot of fanfare around that. People totally. are really excited. It's bringing lots of jobs. Um, and it's true. It does bring lots of jobs. Uh, the My concern with something like what's going on on West Plains is that we spend a lot of economic development resources right. to catch the one big fish. Yeah. Uh, could you imagine if we took those resources instead and uh, focused on growing our economy from within, from the small businesses right. here within Spokane yeah. that, are, uh, that aren't going to hire 3,000 people, one, one business, you know, right. a 10-person shop isn't going to become a 3,010-person shop. But right. what if you have 300 businesses that hire 10 people yeah. over a certain period? I feel like that's a much more, um, that's a stronger way to grow. Yeah. It's more robust to economic downturns. Right. And it doesn't presume that we can actually go out and get that big fish. What happens when you don't, you know, what happens if you go after the Amazons of the world and then they turn their back and say, well, either uh, in the first place, no, we're not coming there. So you've wasted all your time. Right. Or it's like the whole Amazon HQ two thing is an object lesson in that that went like literally the entire country went crazy trying to catch that big fish. Absolutely. Um, the other problem is that when you've now that Amazon is there, um, if Amazon comes to town and says, in ten years, you know that that facility that we built is really just kind of obsolete. We need this new one. Oh, and by the way, we need some some tax breaks. We need all these other things right. in order to make it work the city is now in a bind because they don't want to see those 3000 jobs go away, but they have um, basically put their eggs in that one basket. Right. So they're like over the, it's like this, a similar um, problem you see with like sports teams, right? Absolutely. Like stadiums and stuff. Yep. 
Yeah. That's fascinating. So uh, when it comes to my ethos on planning is very similar. Um, okay. I, I wish there was a term planning gardening. Uh, I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll have to think of a, Coin of a that pithy some. phrase. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think that as planners, we should be uh, better observers of our environment and less interested in shaping our environment. Right. Um, the, uh, just like a gardener, I mean, y- you can't force a carrot to grow. Yeah. Uh, just telling a carrot to grow isn't going to do it. Right. Um, you have to be keenly aware of the conditions, the soil, the, uh, the moisture content, uh, the sunlight, mm-hmm. the, the location of the garden on your property. There's all kinds of things that you have to be aware of right. that make that, that, that can allow that carrot to grow. But you as the gardener are not growing that carrot. Right. Uh, we as planners, we can create conditions or we can pay attention to the conditions that make a city strong and prosperous or that make a city uh, not strong, weak, I guess. Right. Um, and and can put us into decline. Yeah. But ultimately, we don't grow the city. That's the actions of the hundreds of thousands of individuals that live here right. who are going about their daily business. Mm-hmm. And we need to be cognizant of that as planners. Yeah. That's fascinating. We're going to get more into that later as we dive into the strong the work you do with Strong Towns. Uh, but I want to keep kind of on the intro side of things. You've lived in Spokane now for, like, what, close to two years? Year and a half. Okay, yep. cool. And where are you from originally? I grew up in Idaho Falls. Oh, okay. So southern Idaho, close yep. to, uh, I don't know if it'll probably be old news by the time this airs. Well, I guess we're going to try to get it out tomorrow, but Inc., uh, Inc. Magazine just rated Spokane the 31st best place to start a business in America and Boise, close to Idaho. Well, I guess not that close to Idaho Falls, but in the in the vicinity, number five, which okay. is pretty interesting. Uh, so, and then you, did you go to BYU? I did. Okay. For my undergrad. For your undergrad? Okay. Yeah, my graduate was at University of Wisconsin. Got it. Oh, okay. So you, oh, wow, you lived in Madison. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Yeah. I kind of, okay, well, maybe we just added a whole other range of topics. This might be a two-episode <laughs> podcast because okay. I'm, I'm fascinated. So I am fascinated by my background is in journalism, but I also started a, an arts organization that helps um, young and emerging artists. And kind of it was built to, or we started it to kind of help stop the brain drain to bigger cities from Spokane. And it, over the course of doing that work, one of my biggest observations is that, like, solution big city solutions aren't always don't always work for um mid-sized cities and the the sorts of things you can do and the sort of impact you can have in a mid-sized city just isn't possible at least you know with the limited data set that i have from my friends that do similar work in in larger cities so i've always but and madison seems like a really cool very like a city that's been very thoughtfully planned since like the 60s right around pedestrian use uh, it has its challenges. Okay. Um, I, part of me is I don't, I don't believe in ranking cities really. So, yeah. uh, I wouldn't say it's better or worse than Spokane, I guess it, there were, there were parts of Madison that were amazing yeah. for a pedestrian. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think there are parts of Spokane that are amazing for a pedestrian in different ways. Cool. Um, it, it has a reputation uh, and I think, like I said, in some areas, it lives up to the reputation. Right. Um, it has a lot of work to do. No, and, uh, you know, don't we all? But uh, it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, being able to have an outsized influence in, in smaller to midsize metros. Yeah. Uh, 
Madison and Spokane are about the same size. Right. But I somehow, I'm not sure what it is here. Uh, maybe I haven't been here long enough to really put my finger on it, but I have managed to make more connections here than I ever did in Spokane. Um, or in Madison. Uh, sorry, in Madison. Uh, I, I feel I feel more plugged in wow. just from a civic standpoint. Yeah, that's cool. And I think a big part of that is there are just... Madison's a university town. Yeah. Um, it's got a lot of state government workers. It's like, it's the capital city too, right? Yeah. yeah. So its economy is almost, is it's not almost entirely, but a very large portion of the economy is driven by state government and by city em, or, and by uh, university employees. Well, it also has like tech companies and stuff have invested in it pretty heavily too. So you maybe even get a little bit of the same issues you see in Seattle with like Google throwing its weight around the way Amazon does in Seattle. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a highly educated area, right? Um, and uh, I don't education is a really important thing, but yeah. sometimes really smart people think they're smarter than they really are, right? Um, and so I felt maybe that's part of why it was hard to get plugged in in Madison. There are just so many really smart people all getting involved in a lot of different things. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe it was. Uh, uh, the number of fish swimming in that pond yeah, were that makes sense. were it was really large, right? And so I I just I felt like I I, f- I feel like I've had a much easier time kind of plugging in here. Yeah, maybe it's something like the the phase in the growth of any given city, re- maybe regardless of the size, but probably for mid-sized cities where it's like we're I, I feel like Spokane's just sort of made a conscious choice to become the city that it's going to become in the last maybe decade and maybe that helps with, cause it, it hasn't been a place that people have been coming to since the sixties, the way people have been coming to Madison. Maybe. Yeah. Um, okay. So in hindsight, it sounds like it might've been a pretty good move, but what sort of, what got Spokane on your radar in the first place? I mean, I'm a big SDA booster. I think it's punches way above its weight for a city its size. I think our bike pet infrastructure seems like it's getting better. Uh, but it's it's not like a multimodal utopia around here. So, but you've already said you don't like ranking cities. So, what what um as you were sort of re- I'm guessing you're the sort of guy that researches places, right? You didn't just jump. What what drew you to Spokane? Um, it was probably a nine month process. Wow. Um, so I um, I had the firm that I work for was willing to let me work remotely. Yeah. Um, we we don't have um. A, an office here. I come to the co-working space and right. uh, I, I occasionally go over to our Seattle office to uh, just to check in. But yeah. a lot of what I do is remote. Um, in other words, I was basically not constrained uh, geographically. I could kind of go anywhere. Uh, we wanted to be closer to family. Okay. I've got my family in Idaho. I've got family down in Utah. Okay. My wife's um, from Alaska, but her family has moved down near Portland now. So, okay. Um, we knew that we wanted to be, you know, within a reasonable distance of some of our family. Yeah. Uh, that constrained our options a little bit. We were mostly looking in the Western United States. Right. Um, we like the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I, we have offices in Seattle and Portland, but I knew I didn't want to live there. I'm, uh, I don't, I don't, uh, have enough tattoos to live in <laughs> Portland and I don't drink enough coffee to live in Seattle. Yeah. So, um, it just wasn't my thing. And I, I mean, th- Seattle is, is very expensive now, but even Portland is quite expensive. Yeah. And 
um, I was looking at, you know, finances and thinking, man, that's, that's just a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so, uh, looked around at all options. I mean, small towns, medium cities, everything. Yeah. Uh, actually thought about Sandpoint. Oh, cool. Um, Coeur d'Alene, uh, is a, probably a little more expensive than I was looking for. Right. At least the parts of Coeur d'Alene I would have wanted to live in. <laughs> yeah. Um, we looked at Boise, uh, looked at Reno, Nevada, okay. um, looked at some, some places in Oregon, uh, Eugene. Uh, we looked at, uh, I mean, like I said, it was a, it was a long process. Yeah. And when I say looked, we didn't actually visit these places. Right. This was a Google stalking, I guess. Okay. It's the, the equivalent <laughs> of like Facebook stalking your, uh, yeah. your, your love interest. This was me like just street viewing every road in the city. Oh, that's awesome. Um, a couple of things really drew me to Spokane. Uh, the first is you're just surrounded by this amazing natural beauty. It's, yeah. it's a fantastic area. And there, that's true of a lot of places here in the Northwest, but the access, it's so much easier to access here. Yeah. Um, I, I think another, one of the biggest things, uh, I'll use Boise as the counter comparison. Okay. Um, cause, cause Boise and Spokane, I see them as sort of, uh, they're not sister cities. Uh, they're similar. They're similar sized. Yeah. Um, they're located, you know, pretty close geographically. Uh, the history of the growth of Spokane, I wrote a whole article about this on Strong Towns, but the history of the growth of Spokane is uh, very, er, very rapid, explosive growth early on. Right. You start out in, I, I can't remember the years, but let's say 1890-ish. Mm-hmm. You're a village of like a thousand people. Yeah. And within like 20 years, 100,000 people live here. Yeah. It's crazy. That, yeah. that is like an insane amount of growth. Uh, that all happened pre-World War II, and that's important. I'll come back to that. Right. Boise, uh, on the other hand, is mostly mid to late 20th century growth. Post-war, Boise's like, I don't know, 50 or 60,000 people. It continues to grow at a decent clip every year, and in like '60s, '70s, '80s, it takes off. Okay. Uh, the The reason that the the pre-war versus post-war distinction matters is that the way that we build our cities uh, changed dramatically. Right. With uh, with the war as kind of the break point. Pre-war, we're focused on you know good street grids, yeah. small lot sizes. Lots of alley access, uh, so um, you get street, you get houses that address the front of the street without a giant garage that kind of kills the street life. Right. Um, post-war, we go to more of the suburban mindset. Right. So you get you know giant garages, you get uh, poor street connectivity, you get massive overbuilt you know thoroughfares with carrying gigantic amounts of traffic, but they're really right. hard to bike on or right. to cross the street. So uh, the difference in the time th- that the two cities grew was, uh, is significant. Yeah. When I look at a map of Spokane, the street, the street grid here is, uh, it is an anomaly, I would mm-hmm. say. Uh, uh, lots of other st- cities have strong street grids, right. but the ones that, that grew to the size of Spokane pre-World War II, most of them continued on their trajectory, like Portland or Seattle, okay. to become then really major metro areas. Right. 
Spokane, for a variety of reasons, sort of stagnated in the middle part of the 20th century yeah. as the extractive economy moved elsewhere. And so we didn't, right. we didn't quite have the same economic base. Um, that, that leaves us with this amazing legacy of pre-war urban development pattern hmm. that is just waiting for lovers of cities to take advantage of it, basically. That's beautiful. The building we're sitting in, 1895, by the way, this side. And yeah. The other side was 1910. Um, and you can really, I mean, you just feel it. You know, the, we're sitting next to this brick wall that's got layers and layers of paint on it. And it was a, it was a cracker bakery, like industrial scale. Um, that's, it's fascinating. Um, we'll, uh, I think we might come back to that too, but the, the idea of, um, when I'd only ever, I'd, what I had, what I had noticed was that for whatever reason, Spokane stagnated and a lot of these amazing old buildings that we still have downtown didn't get torn down the way they got torn down in, <clears throat> in Seattle for high rises and, you know, and like in, in a lot of ways, greater density, which is probably good. Uh, but you really can, and especially when you come in on the train, which is a mode of transportation that doesn't get used much in the West or in America in general, it's like you get a sense of that late 19th century city as it built up and it's it's really really incredible and so as I sort of I mean I left for a year like everybody did um and but when I sort of came back and started getting involved with the work that we first with the Inlander but then with later with the the arts organization you start really sort of noticing things like that and how that how special that is and um and we've got problems with sprawl but it's like even and yeah, and the problems with sprawl are significant, but it, even those feel like concentric circles. You can sort of like, you know, you can almost, it's almost like you can, I live on the lower South Hill and I can, you know, if you run straight South, you can almost, it's like the rings of a tree almost. You can see the way the development happened yep. even into the post-war period. Yep. And you see the decisions people started to make around like, you know, the, the lots go from being sort of narrow and long front to narrow side to side and long front to back to being more sort of, you know, rancher style. But then you also see the sidewalks disappear and, you know, those little, you know, the, the little, uh, shopping center, or, you know, retail areas that were like little pocket retail mm -hmm. around, uh, intersections don't really exist yeah. once you get south of 37th. Um, and then in, on the north side of Spokane, it's even more sort of, ab, you know, once you get north of, say, Garland, then you get into, it, it's nothing until you get into, like, strip mall culture, yep. you know, starting at Five Mile, but then all the way up to North Point. And so um, it's, it's you can almost read the life of a city when you're looking at the map. So it must have been fascinating for you to, like, so I, I'm guessing you got a lot of information just from looking at the Google map totally. of these cities. So the... Um uh, Garland is a fantastic example of a, a commercial strip on a on a on a thoroughfare that I just I love that. Yeah. I mean, we would have moved. To, I live in West Central. We would have moved to Garland, but um, Garland is just a little little far from downtown. Right. And I also didn't want to be biking up a hill every day. That's an intense hill too. <laughs> so, I didn't I didn't want to do that. Um, but the the those little kind of neighborhood commercial nodes. Yeah. That was another big thing that drew me here. And it's all part of that same development pattern. Like you said, um, when we looked at Boise, uh, I, I feel like I'm ripping on Boise a lot, but, uh, that's, that's my job since I'm not, uh, since I'm from out of Boise, but within the state. Right. Um, we, 
we looked at the North End. I don't know how familiar you are with Boise, but the North End is sort of like the the traditional residential area that grew up. I've only been to Boise warm. a couple times, but it's I, I remember they've got a lot of like stone like houses built out of stone. So it's kind of like our Browns edition almost, or something yeah, like that. It's like it's like yeah. our Browns edition, um, except that uh, it costs so much to live in the North End, and yeah. I think part of that is that that's the only Boise neighborhood that's like that. Oh yeah. Again, coming out of the out of the the um, the eras in which each city grew, Boise didn't didn't have a lot of uh, doesn't have a lot of housing stock from that era because it just wasn't that big. Yeah. So uh, the people who want that style of development, who want to live close to downtown, who want to live in a walkable neighborhood where they can walk down to the corner coffee shop or whatever, right? That um, that just only exists in one place in Boise, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. And so everybody bids up the prices there, including the um, the out of towners with lots of money from the Bay Area or whatever, and. Right. The prices there are insane. So yeah. uh, there was no way we could live in the North End. We yeah. would have basically been paying like Portland or Seattle prices to That's live incredible. there. That's incredible. Wow. And we felt like we looked here at Spokane and there's like, I don't know, eight or nine like commercial neighborhood oriented commercial districts like that yeah. with affordable housing around it. Yeah. Uh, like that was a no brainer for me. Of course, we'll take Spokane. That's awesome. So now that you've, you're here, though, like let's not be too Pollyanna-ish. What are, what are some of the things that, as you've lived here for a year and a half, you think we could you know, improve on or we really need to start thinking about as a city? One of the things I think about, because people are starting to move here in pretty decent number. I mean, I, I was keeping more close tabs you know, a couple of years ago when Fellow started, but I, we, there was a point where we, I think we were like 60% recent transplants li- working out of the co-working space because partly because when you're coming from a big, like we're kind of had to teach Spokane what co-working even is, but people who are moving here maybe had already been at a WeWork or something. So it's, we're seeing this sort of growth firsthand. So as we're sort of having conversations around, you know, well, it's, it's creating these affordable housing problems, but it's also like, we're going to have to start making some decisions about how we, you know, build housing and, and accommodate people. So uh, what what have your observations been both about the way we're maybe at the metal level, like how we talk about this stuff and how we think about this stuff as a city, and and then also sort of like the work you would like to see the city do around sort of planning effectively for the future? Um, about, for, uh, about affordable housing specifically or just... May- maybe or just... Yeah, or just re- maybe just growth in general, but affordable housing specifically. I've, I've got a whole list of questions on affordable housing later, but yeah. we can always dive in because that seems to be the most important thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, so uh, in general, I think a, a problem, I, I don't think this is unique to Spokane necessarily, but uh, coming back to the West Plains, I, I think there's sort of a a home run mentality Yeah. on the part of... Um, I, I don't think it's just decision makers. I think a lot of voters like to see that, you know, let's go, let's go after that, you know, big 3000 worker Amazon plant, or let's go right. after the um, electric car manufacturer or whatever else it is. Um, these aren't, these aren't really bad things, but is that, is that the most, is that going to build the most resilient, um, you know, equitable city that, that we want to see? Right. Um, it's easy for a, a politician or decision maker to, uh, w- when they're successful with something like Amazon, they love it. Yeah. They can go out and cut ribbons, 
and get newspaper stories about how they brought 3,000 jobs to town. Right. We're not writing stories about the, you know, the tweak to the zoning code that allowed neighborhood shops to open up and hire who knows how many, um, you know, dozens, maybe several hundred workers at basically no cost to the city. So those are changes that um, are a heavier lift politically because there's not a lot of payoff for politicians. Yeah. Um, But they need to be a, a bigger part of our conversation. Right. The, I think about the, you wrote a story about the, it's, it's no longer Batch Bake Shop, but the building that used to house Batch Bake Shop yep. being a, it was a, basically a little pocket commercial. I think it used to be a butcher um, or something like that, but it's just this one little commercial space in the middle of, you know, West Central that couldn't have existed. Literally, the zoning didn't allow that to be anything for the longest time. Doyle's Ice Cream Shop, I guess, is another example in West Central. Yep. Uh, in on the way to Perry, the Grain Shed is one of my favorite new restaurants in Spokane. It's incredible, and they've got this incredible philosophy about the way they do their food. It's a very community focused thing. Yep. Literally, couldn't have existed. You know, like that building had like very restricted use until zoning changed. Yeah, and so these are the things. So it's not it's not the it's not the Amazon warehouse, but it's like I would say batch grain shed Do- i mean doyle's was bringing back something that the neighborhood had lost decades ago and so that's when you think about what com- contributes to the life of a community those have got to be you know it's different metrics for measuring but that's that's in- significant stuff right absolutely i um I, I feel like i'm bashing on amazon and it's the, I'm, I'm not intending to um to be anti-amazon here but uh the, uh, the there's a significant difference in um, growing a, a local business versus bringing in a business from outside. Right. Um, just as a, a, by way of a couple of examples, imagine, for example, the grain shed. I don't. I don't actually know who owns the grain shed. Maybe you do. Uh, that person probably employs uh, a local accountant. Mm-hmm. Probably employed a, a, an attorney locally to handle the paperwork and whatever else needed to happen to open their business. Right. Uh, when uh, when the little league is looking for a coach, they're yeah. they're that's who they're going to turn to. When um, Catholic Charities is looking for money to to improve the homeless shelter or do other things that they need to do, right. That's the kind of person who's going to contribute to that effort. Jeff Bezos isn't. He's not going to be providing that that you know to the city that's not and he doesn't live here I, I i'm not saying i would expect him to right but uh th- those local businesses are the lifeblood of the community yeah in more than just financial ways right um that's that's really the civic health of the community as right. well i will say just for the sake of the record he did donate five million dollars to catholic charities but i don't necessarily think that that was you know that was not about well, I don't know. I don't want to put words, you know, thoughts into his head, but that seemed somewhat calculated given the fights that have been happening in, in some of the cities that Amazon is in, Seattle specifically, around homelessness and stuff. So Sure. And, and you know, we'll accept money from wherever it's coming. I, right. I, I, wouldn't, totally. I wouldn't throw it back in his face. Um, but if we're looking at, you know, over the long term, is he going to be donating $5 million in 10 years when they need it? Right. Or in 15 years. Yeah. And yet the owner of the grain shed is going to be here for the long haul. Yeah. The grain shed is actually a worker cooperative, which is pretty cool. So it has okay. this sort of equity based model around, you know, giving, you know, it's a, it's a pretty equitable, um, uh, organization, which I, I find super cool. Um, 
it seems like we're dancing around this thing. And I'm you're so I want to talk start talking about Strong Towns. It's a it's an organization, I guess you it's a nonprofit. It is a nonprofit. You, so you write for it and it's you I'll let you give the the um the elevator pitch for it, but it's it's sort of this I I've I think I've been aware of it on Twitter and Facebook for a while, but then I started started seeing Chuck Marone, who's the founder seeing his stuff pop up more. And I think it's maybe because like I got connected to some, not just you, but like Brett Todarian, who's an urban planner, uh, came to Spokane, like DSP, D- Downtown Spokane Partnership brought him to Spokane. And I really, like the things he said was, uh, it was, I started following him on Twitter because he was just like really had some interesting things to say about planning. Uh, but this idea of, and we've been sort of like talking about it, and I think Amazon is an example of this, and then like maybe the Cracker Building that we're sitting in is the is the counterexample, or just any sort of these like sort of dense, you know, filled with lots of little businesses um, blocks in an old, in a you know pre-war neighborhood or a pre-war downtown. The the difference uh, between uh, complex systems and complicated systems. So maybe talk a little bit about what Strong Towns is, why you felt the need, like why you want to write for them, what their deal is, and we can start diking in a little bit to that. Yeah. Like, uh, Strong Towns is uh, a, they define themselves as a, as a media organization. Okay. So uh, to be clear, I don't work for Strong Towns. I'm just a volunteer who writes okay. occasionally. Ooh, totally. Um, they have their own staff, and um, the the goal really is to change the conversation nationally on how cities grow and develop. Um, a lot of what I've talked about here fits very well with uh, the Strong Towns message. So um, how, to, how to describe Strong Towns in 30 words or less? Let's see. <laughs> um, basically, the, the our approach to growth and development uh, over... Uh, Again, World War II is a pretty good breakpoint. Sure. Basically, since World War II has been very top-down oriented, uh, very rules-based, and um, not, uh, it doesn't adopt the gardening approach to building cities. Right. Um, it gets to what you were saying about complex versus complicated. Uh, something that's complicated, a, a washing machine, for example, if a part breaks, you swap a new part in and you're off running. Each part has its little function and uh, it fits in with uh, the the next part down the line. And there's there's kind of an overall coherent design. Yeah. Um, That washing machine is not designed to change, right? Right. Uh, Take a cat, uh, a living organism, as as a counterexample. That is a complex machine, a complex organism. Sure. Uh, when, when the cat's, um, you, you don't swap out a leg of a cat, right? <laughs> like yeah. when your cat's leg falls off, your cat hobbles with three legs for the rest of its life. Right. Um, but on the flip side, your cat grows. Your cat's born as a kitten. Right. And over time, it grows and develops. Um, your cat can respond to feedback from the outside. When it gets cold, the cat curls up in a ball and tries to stay warm. When it's hot, the cat sheds its fur. And so the, um, the, the individual pieces within the cat's body are all responding in complex ways. There's not a, there's not a single, there's not a one, um, uh, one organ doesn't interact in only one single way with the rest of the body. 
Right. Right. So that's the difference between complexity and, and complicated. Right. Our, our current approach to city building is mostly complicated. Um, we treat zoning codes, transportation investments as an input with basically one single point of interaction with the outside world. We, uh, we think that we can accurately predict what, what a change is going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then we go out and make those changes. And when, uh, when it turns out that we're working with a cat and not a washing machine with our cities, right. uh, we're surprised that, that the system evolved and adapted based on the change that we've made. Yeah. And that it didn't quite fit our expectations. If it was just more like a washing machine, yeah. if, if uh, you know, just plugging in the, the hose for water and turning it on, if, right. only, if only it could be that easy. Yeah. That's how we approach our planning. And that's, um, that's uh, a big part of why I think our cities are, are in distress right yeah. now. So Strong Towns is trying to change that, that conversation. Um, and the way they do that is by publishing content basically, and then going out and doing events. So one of the the, the metaphor that I think Chuck used in his talk that was really illuminating to me, um, but just like it was just a light bulb went on, was if a complex system is like a huge monoculture. So actually, it's funny we've been talking about Boise so much because I was thinking about like the potato fields all down in Boise where it's like they're growing mostly one kind of potato, mostly for McDonald's or, or just fast food restaurants in general. And if a potato blight hits these hundreds of millions of thousands, whatever insane amount of acreage can wipe out the entire crop. So that's, that's a complex system because it takes a lot of effort. You know, like there's a, there's a whole system built up around like, you know, that one crop and how to, you know, keep it properly moisturized and, and, you know, with the nutrients it needs in the soil, but a single thing can just completely, you know, you know, put a spanner in the works. Whereas the complex system is like a rainforest where if a tree falls, like the rain, the forest doesn't die. It actually u- repurposes that tree. And so thinking about, you know, a block full of buildings, each building has four or five different businesses. Any one of those businesses goes out of business. It's, it's actually, it's sad for that person. If a fellow were to disappear, people would be sad, but the building wouldn't fail. The block wouldn't fail. The neighborhood wouldn't fail. Whereas if you've got a, like a box store or a huge, like a suburb. So my, my, Dad's family is from Stockton, California, and my uncle, who now lives in Boise, funnily enough, uh, built a, a house on about 10 acres in Lodi, California. And he was surrounded by like almond groves, and it was, you know, it's, it's grown, you know, it's the Central Valley, it's a really fertile area around there. In the 90s, I came back in about, I think, tw- 2007, so a year before everything went to hell. And it was, he had the biggest plot of land left in that area and the rest had just been completely subdeveloped three years later, like well, Stockton went bankrupt, like 90% of that, you know, subdevelopment was foreclosed upon. He was able to eventually sort of ride it out and get a decent value for his home, which was like the first thing built in that area. But that's a, that was a really, when, when Chuck was sort of explaining that, the, that metaphor, I was just seeing all these real world comparisons, having just, you know, not just, but like having lived through the, the housing crisis. So. Yeah. And the kicker when he talked about rainforest is when you, when you cut down rainforest and then let something grow back, you don't get rainforest back. No. That takes decades and, you know, maybe even more to develop back into rainforest if it will at all. Right. So, um, 
yeah, the the um, the complex nature of cities is, is something that I don't think we appreciate enough. Yeah, that's really really fascinating. Um, so let me. Where am I at? I've, we've kind of gone a little bit away from my script, but it's been an awesome conversation so far. Um, okay, so you wrote when you wrote a little introduction to Spokane for Strong Towns. Yeah, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but maybe we could dig into this, the whole sort of, uh, you said like most cities, Spokane started out as a bet by city founder, James Glover and others. Quote, unlike hundreds and perhaps thousands of others, his big gamble paid off. The Northern Pacific Railroad, Railroad came to town, to, or came to Spokane in 1881, and the city boomed. But then there were thousands of other cities that the railroad didn't come to town, or you know, uh, all across America. And that's kind of the reality of, you know, European settlement of America, right? It's like we were kind of taking a bunch of little bets across this entire continent and sort of seeing what came of it. So, I don't know, can you talk a little bit about that and how that sort of, did that shape the way we, um, the way these cities sort of built up in that pre-war period? Um. I think so. I think it still shapes the way we build in one way, and I'll maybe talk about that. Um, the idea was that there were many Spokanes in embryo across the continent, like you said, uh, but not all of them worked out. Uh, back when Spokane was developed, was, f was first founded, uh, it, it wasn't um, a government-funded enterprise in the sense that you know, you didn't get uh, uh, a $50,000 grant to go and found a new city. Yeah. It was a railroad company or some other speculator, basically, right. saying, I think we can make a go of it here. Yeah. You set up shop with the, the least expensive buildings you can, you can provide, and you try to see if you can make it, make it, make it work. Uh, a lot of places failed. Yeah. Um, or maybe they didn't fail completely, but they also didn't really take off. Yeah. Um, but some places uh, it did take off. And the, um, one of the things that Chuck emphasizes, and uh, I don't remember if, if my quote there really um, teased it out, but uh, we don't really know what it is that causes that to happen all the time. Right. In the case of Spokane, the railroad came. So that was a big a big part of it. Who could have predicted that? I mean, maybe yeah. maybe they were thinking, well, wouldn't it be great if the railroad came here? But yeah. they weren't the ones making the decision for the railroad. They didn't know for sure. Yeah. Um, this might be asking you to be a historian, and this is something I could probably look at. But was it, did the railroad come before the discovery of silver in the Silver Valley? Or or was it logging? Or um, I mean, I know those were the two big early industries. Know, but I, I am not sure yeah. about that. So, but either way, it could be, it could be, it doesn't necessarily need to be the railroad. It could have been like, oh, this, there was a vein of silver in this part of the mountain and not in this other part of the rock, you know, the foothills of the Rockies where we are. So, right. Yeah. Or, I mean, why, why did Seattle become the major port on the, um, in the Northwestern United States as opposed to Bellingham yeah. or, you know, whatever, whatever other port city you can think of. Right. There's, um, it, it Essentially, it's uh, it is unpredictable because we're living in a complex environment. Yeah, and that's not to say that you can't um, you can't make some educated guesses about things and be intelligent about where you place a city, for example. But um, we don't we don't really always know what what leads to 
um, something to succeed or something to fail. And that's one of the reasons I think it seems like it would be sort of foolish to try to overly prescribe planning cities because we we don't really know what the special sauce is all the time. And so when you try to sort of make a make a washing machine where you're going to get it and it turns into a cat that can be, you know, right. Yeah. And that's, um, that's, uh, you, you mentioned at one point that, um, how did you say it? Big city approaches don't always translate to medium size. Uh, the conditions it's, it's like the gardener working with the garden. Right. Uh, that, that, that person is looking at, is, is looking at the weather they're testing the soil, you know, they're doing whatever they can to be informed about what's going on. Um, and then they're trying to make good decisions about where to plant their garden and how to plant it to take advantage of the conditions that are there. Yeah. But ultimately they don't control those conditions, yeah. at least not completely. So, uh, where I think, uh, maybe it's a lack of awareness that, that comes back to bite us, but when when something succeeds, like the city of Spokane, yeah, uh, we I think we tend to pat ourselves on the back and think, man, we did such a great job building right. this amazing city, yeah. right? Um, forgetting that there were hundreds of other places that didn't succeed, and that yeah. it was essentially a roll of the dice. Right. So what happens is we we start to uh, we start to we congratulate ourselves on our success. Yeah. And then we look back and try to think, okay, what was it that we did that really made that successful? I don't think that's a that's not a bad exercise, but I think we put too much stock into it. Yeah. And this, um, I've been hammering economic development, but I think that that's a that's a big one. We we think that um, because in the past we've been able to use economic development efforts to to bring you know big businesses to town, we think well you know let's just do more of that. Yeah. Well, when that approach stops working at some point, if that approach stops working, there's not really a, a, a uh, we don't we don't tend to have a very robust conversation around uh, may, maybe we need to make a change here. Yeah. Um, we tend to double down on what we did in the past, thinking that that was what really led to our success. Right. When ultimately, a lot of it was really just chance. Yeah. And so then, then we can get ourselves into a, an unhealthy um, cycle where we're, you know, throwing everything we can at this problem. You know, we're the we're the gardener putting fertilizer like you know on our garden like crazy, thinking that it's a, a nitrogen problem, right. when really it's a lack of rainfall, yeah. and we don't control that. I uh, desperately want. I've my wife does most of the gardening and she's awesome at it, but, uh, I, I love rose bushes and I love rhododendrons and I've been able to cultivate a couple really amazing rose bushes at our house and I've killed <laughs> a dozen rhododendrons. And it's just the saddest thing. It's like, um, houses on my side of the street, very similar situation, have these hundred year old rhododendrons that were, you know, you know, planted when the house was built and I just can't keep one alive. And it's, it's, and we've, kind of just figured it's probably just the soil or something you know yeah. something where nothing we've we've done wrong it's just it's not the conditions aren't there for it that's a really interesting metaphor it so when we are talking about these complex and i don't know this might be a little bit of a tangent maybe you haven't thought about it in, a, uh, in this way but did, 
does what we're talking about here kind of explain what happened to Detroit when the automobile, like the auto industry failed? Was that a, a situation where even though it was multiple companies and stuff, it was like a single industry that was, it was a huge, you know, massive city that was, and maybe this is true of multiple places in the, ru- in the rust belt, like where the, the, tr- it was a complex or a complicated system. But when that one, it was like that, the potato blight, you know, of the automobile industry hit that spelled a serious, serious, you know, period for the city. Um, yeah, I think so. So Chuck, um, did we talk about who Chuck is? Chuck's the founder of strong towns. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we mentioned that, but we kind of been talking around it in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so Chuck's the founder of strong towns and he came and did his presentation here a couple months ago. Um, he talks about Detroit and I, I think, um, that definitely fits sort of with the strong towns narrative of things. Yeah. Um, from the strong towns perspective, Detroit was uh, was a, 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 an early success. Yeah. Um, you know the arsenal of democracy, and right. we built these factories, and we were we were rebuilding the world. Basically, we came out of World War II, and we're basically the only um, industrialized power left standing. Yeah, and um, everybody needs our our goods because they've bombed each other's factories to bits. Yeah. So uh, Detroit ends up kind of leading the charge there because that's where the industrial capacity had been built. Right. Um, as things started to turn, as we started offshoring the manufacturing capabilities and um, we had improvements in, in productivity, so we needed fewer workers for things. Uh, we, we looked... Uh, so Detroit, first of all, thought, again, that it was their efforts that had really, like created their success when ultimately it was sort of this uh this historical accident that created detroit as it was right um but as as we came out of the war and detroit was so successful we we said you know detroit's really successful let's let's copy that let's apply it everywhere yeah and detroit had been you know already building massive freeways and kind of expanding out into the countryside Mm. into lower density development and um it looked good at the time right. it seemed like a great idea uh, until it wasn't yeah um and so as as manufacturing capacity left and detroit started to fail they didn't like what what else do you do they've, they've only known manufacturing their whole right. life that's that is the city yeah so it's it's really hard once you've developed those patterns to change them especially when they are kind of monoculture like mm-hmm. you pointed out so if all you do is build cars or other, you know, really intricate manufacturing, when that economy pulls up and goes away, yeah. it's, it's really hard to repurpose that. Mm-hmm. Um, being a more diversified economy lets parts of the, the economy fail without the catastrophic consequences. Right. I sometimes worry about that or wonder and think about that with like how reliant we are on the healthcare industry around here to the extent that that's like such a major industry of ours, obviously every time there's any sort of talk at all of the, the air force base leaving, you know, that's just like panic mode. Um, and w- because that has like, would have a trickle down effect on the entire West Plains, you would think, um, uh, it strikes me when back to the little, um, the, the concentric, cer- the, uh, the sort of the growth rings around Spokane and this idea of doubling down on the same thing. So one of the things that Chuck talks about is just the strong towns in general is that um, when, so World War II happens, 
America becomes like a hegemon in, you know, the only industrialized nation left, like you said, like we sort of ramp up production in a way that even we hadn't done in World War One to win this, win this effort. Uh, but then all the people that have been fighting the war come home. They all need jobs. They all need places to live. So on the one hand, it seems like a pretty natural response to a need, but also this idea of like, well, growth is really, it's, you know, people got rich on that war too, in addition to, you know, being, being able to sort of fulfill the, the, the task, which was to, to win it in the first place. And so, you know, as I'm thinking about starting at your neighborhood and then heading north toward where my parents live north of Whitworth, and I grew up in f- even further north in Chatteroy, it's like you see those little tiny, maybe 800 square foot, like post-war bungalows in Shadle, and then they get a little bit bigger and everything is a little bit bigger, and then you start, you get to five mile, and all of a sudden the houses are hanging off the side of a cliff, and there's <laughs> three stories, and, you know, so you go from being maybe... Uh, I w- worked at the Safeway at Monroe and Francis was my first job and there was a kid named Gabe who was, uh, that's a ba- he played basketball, he was a center, he was probably six, ten, and he lived in one of those houses in Shadle and he had to duck to get through the door, you know, it's just, and it was, the house, if it was an 800 square foot plate, I, I would be surprised. And so, but then, so that's this idea of we're, we keep doubling down and so, oh, if these, we, we built a bunch of like return, like GI housing basically, just because people need to live somewhere. And then it just becomes this thing. It's a beast that like feeds itself for going on 80 years now. Yeah. And it hasn't really stopped. And there's a, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money to be made on it. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, I'm, I hesitate to, um, I, I think w- when we talk about house size, for example, or lot size, I think right. people, people, get defensive about that oh totally um i'm not in the business of criticizing people for their their decisions about how big that how big of a house they need or how much land they need right um from the strong towns perspective the real problem is that uh as we expanded our lot sizes and expanded our house sizes uh we lost sight of the need to pay for the infrastructure that serves those areas right so uh you brought up the example of narrow lots that are deep being yeah. kind of the old the old way of uh, developing and then going to the ranch style where the the lots are wide and shallow right well if you have let's just say you've got a, a 200 foot wide lot yeah or we'll say 150 foot wide lot yeah um the 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 feet of street the linear feet of street required to serve that is 150 feet right if you've got, uh, what would that be? Six lots that are twenty-five feet wide, right? Or let's even make them wider to be more kind of standard with what happened here historically. So we'll say three fifty-foot lots. Yeah. Um, some of the, a lot of the lots in West Central are fifty feet, I think. Yeah. Uh, those three fifty-feet lots require the same amount of street, but you've got three houses paying for them. Right. Um. Multiple and so paying for the pipes, the s- so water paying, pipes, sewer. Yeah, that's not just the street. That's all the street, of the, the, the asphalt. Yeah, the sidewalks. It's all the infrastructure. Right. That, so f- the the street frontage is a pretty good uh, indicator of how much infrastructure is is um, servicing that that location. Right. So uh, as we as we expanded those lot sizes and the house sizes, 
we didn't we didn't think about what that was doing to our muni- municipal finances. Right. Um, this is so I wrote an article. Um, I can't remember if you noted it here that talked about a soft default. Yeah. Yep. So this is a, a soft a soft default is the idea that uh, most municipalities, Detroit notwithstanding, and Stockton and some a few outliers. Right. Most municipalities don't actually declare bankruptcy. Right. What they do is they start putting off routine maintenance. Mm-hmm. And they don't plow the roads as thoroughly as they used to. Um, and, you know, the the parks have less programming, maybe. Yeah. There's there's a whole host of ways that government can cut the the budget that they require to run, uh, to operate. Right. Um, but they're they're effectively uh, reneging on a promise that that the uh, the taxpayers made or that they made to the taxpayers to the taxpayers yeah to provide those services right so when when you drive when I drive down Broadway or bike down Broadway or however I'm going yeah uh, that that street is a disaster it mm-hmm. it totally <laughs> needs to be resurfaced yeah um, and that's true of a lot of streets in Spokane yeah. Um, my street 14th just west of me uh, my my part got resurfaced but once you get west of monroe it's you know down by rosars all the way down cedar's terrible yeah, yeah exactly and that is that is a condition across the city and it's not unique to spokane that is part of a soft default the city uh should have been keeping those streets in good condition yeah but because we have um emphasized increasing house sizes and increasing lot sizes without thinking about the cost to maintain all of that infrastructure. Right. More of our money is going towards just like emergency level maintenance of infrastructure. Yeah. Because we've, we've essentially overbuilt emergency level, but also sort of the, um, also whoever is sort of more political has a larger, bigger political voice, which is why these sort of tonier suburbs will often get, you know, have better infrastructure services than a place like West central, or certain parts of the south, you know, the, the mid to lower South Hill, which is um, also pretty fascinating to me. Because one of the things that uh, Chuck brought up in his talk was that those neighborhoods that we think of as being like poor, rundown, blighted, whatever, are actually the ones that are are contributing net revenue to cities, generally speaking. And it's the suburbs that are actually costing us money. Yep. Yeah. And the the term suburbs, uh, I mean, there's the political distinction of a suburb, which is uh, you know something like the valley or right. Um, th- those are those are separate municipalities. Sure. In which case, you know, the, there's no cross subsidization because tax dollars aren't going across city lines, um, at least for some of that some of that basic infrastructure. Right. Uh, but the, the suburbs as a development pattern. Um, right. Is that that? I think that's the distinction that you're making there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Thanks for that. And so the, um, th- yeah, the issue is that uh, my my neighborhood West Central, um, I think, it has a reputation, um, has had, for a long time. Oh yeah. Uh, people look at that and say, well, you know, they're sucking all the city resources. Yeah. But when you look on a on a on a per acre basis, which uh, when you're talking about infrastructure that serves an area, that's that's a, a better uh, metric to use for the um, how much you know service that that property consumes and how much tax it generates. When you sure. look at a, at a per acre basis, 
a place like West Central is, uh, I haven't actually run the numbers on this, but my guess is that it outperforms um, Shadle or some of those areas where right. you've got more infrastructure serving fewer people. And I mean, that's just basic math. Yeah. So in a way, it's like, uh, what? <laughs> Thanks for pointing out the obvious. And yet right. it doesn't really enter into our conversation. It's not right. something that we think about. We just assume that certain areas are takers and other areas are makers, but we get the we get the association backwards. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I I I live in a in a townhouse that's on a 40 45 foot lot and I know it's 45 feet because it's 5 feet too short to do a zero lot line, so we had to condoize it. Which was a which was like an entire year extra worth of work, but yeah. So I mean, I the it would take. So if if you're talking about like out in say where out in Whitworth where my parents live, and I think they might have a 150 foot wide lot, certainly a hundred at least. Um, it would take like an eight hundred thousand dollar house to match the three houses on my block, probably even more, maybe a million, it would take a million dollar house maybe, you know, with the current prices on the South Hill to match the same sort of tax revenue. So my parents' house would have, it's not worth a million dollars. It's not even close to worth a million dollars, but that's right. what it would have to be to sort of match the same tax base that you get on 14th on the low, the mid South Hill. Yep. And yet it's still requiring the same amount of roads and the same amount of pipes and whatever else, or maybe right. more. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's fascinating. So we jumped to the soft default and that's awesome. I wanted it. So I asked it a question and I, I brought up a podcast that I listened to. So Chuck kind of like pegged me as a lefty and, you know, guilty as charged or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, he said that he makes a point of when he's talking to like a conservative media outlet, he likes to tweak that, that particular set of assumptions and values. And when he's talking to a pro progressive outlet, he likes to tweak that set of assumptions and values. And I get a sense that he just like actually likes kind of likes tweaking people. That's <laughs> part of his personality. It seems like to me, he does correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but is it, is the idea though that like strong towns is above ideology or is it just that it sort of exists where it's trying to sort of get us to break out of some sort of like pretty basic and maybe uh, too simple, like left, right, you know, thinking or something. Um, I think it would, it would, uh, it would, uh, I would characterize as a, I'm not a representative of strong towns, but sure. I think my thinking aligns pretty closely. Yeah. Uh, the current political debate on a whole host of issues does not map very well onto traditional left and right sure. uh, thinking. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so I think strong towns sees itself as uh, sort of outside of that classification. Sure. Um, I've just ripped on suburbs, which tends to be, you know, pretty red meat conservative area. Yeah. Um, but I, I am equally, um, offensive, I think towards, uh, people who, um, see government as the solution to problems. Um, I, I, to qualify that government, I think does have an impact and it's important that we think about its role. Yeah. But I think that in a lot of cases, its role is actually to diminish um, especially as you get further from home. So I don't know. I, I, there's a lot that I don't like about libertarian ideology, but uh, I, I do at a federal level. Um, I generally support a, a reduced role of hmm. 
federal government, um, especially when it comes to regulation. There are obviously certain roles that the federal government needs to play, and I, like I said, I, I don't, I don't necessarily ascribe to libertarian I- ideology, but um, I guess I lean towards that end of the spectrum at a federal level. Hmm. When we get down to the state level, um, I think very differently. I think uh-huh. there's a heavier hand that needs to be played. Sure, um, but still try to have a light touch. Um, okay. I think at a city level, that's where we really should be. Um, vesting a lot of power in in our collective decision making okay. um, because that's closer to where those problems are felt and uh, closer to where the feedback can actually make a difference is part of the idea there that it's like you the, the closer you get to the problem the less likely you are to have sort of a, a one-size-fits-all solution to it yeah i think that's part of it if we go back to the cat and washing machine um when yeah. the, when as you get further from the the um as you as you roam further afield of of the uh, the locality of the problem, uh, you have to adopt washing machine solutions hmm. to things, um, and that's because you can't you can't respond to that local feedback. Right. Uh, lawmakers in in Washington D.C. they they don't they don't care that uh, you know you need a uh, um, that you need to change the zoning classification in order to open a co-working space or whatever. Like, right. I, don't, I don't know what the problem is, but yeah, right. um, they, by nature, it just cannot be responsive to those uh, changing conditions. Sure. Coming back to the gardener, um, you know, the, the, uh, a gardener from two States away can't, can't tell you how to, how to garden cause they don't, they don't know the local conditions and they're not responding to that feedback, the, the microclimate or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I feel like I don't fit into either ideology very well mm-hmm. um, for that reason. Right. Uh, on national issues, I, I probably disagree with a lot of Democrats, but on local issues, I probably disagree with a lot of Republicans. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that's uh, perfectly representative of strong towns, but sure. I think there's some element of that in the strong towns movement. Interesting. It's one seem, one thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you know, it was a pretty wide-ranging discussion, but it seemed like things even at a local level chuck expressed some skepticism around things like tax incentives or tax increment financing around basically like actually something that we've done a decent amount lately in spokane around like okay we really want to help out east sprague or we really want to help out you know kendall yards and hopefully eventually west central so can you talk about what the what maybe if if like you know, you've just said that the the role government takes should get stronger and stronger the closer you get to the problem. But that doesn't mean that like whatever solution a local government takes is necessarily the right one. So can you talk a little bit about why you guys don't like, you know, ta- stuff like tax incentives and stuff like that? Um, yeah, tax. I'm not sure what to say exactly about tax incentives. I'd have to think about that. Okay. Um, I mean, first and foremost, the, um, uh, kind of repeating myself, I guess, but the closer you get to the problem, the less heartburn, uh, action, government action gives me. Okay. So I, I would be, uh, I'll have a a less of a knee jerk reaction against a tax incentive offered by the city compared to a tax incentive offered by the state of Washington or a tax incentive offered by the, the feds. Okay. Um, there's probably cases where a tax incentive could make sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so I, I don't, I don't categorically oppose something like that, but, um, 
let me you use the example of Kendall Yards, and I'm really familiar with that. Yeah, um, was, uh, that was going to be my next question. I was yeah. just talking about that as a as sort of a case study, maybe. Yeah, so um, there's a lot that I think Kendall Yards has done well, mm-hmm. um, and I think the city has been lucky that it turned out the way that it has. Um, it's not perfect, and um, you know that's okay. Nobody nobody can get it right every time, um, but there's a lot that I think was done well. Uh, the the problem with the approach the city has taken at Kendall Yards is uh, it was sort of a um, let's see I have to formulate my thoughts on <laughs> this uh, developers. Uh, see, I, I can't even criticize Kendall Yards for this because they've actually taken sort of a phased approach. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't all built at once. Right. Uh, with that said, um, even within the phases that they that they prepared, um, the the development of Kendall Yards was sort of all at once. Yeah. Meaning, you know, they went. We went down to Summit Boulevard. Avenue? What is it? It's Boulevard. Boulevard, right? yeah. Okay. I was losing my mind for a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, Summit Boulevard didn't start out as a collection of shacks the yeah. way that, say, Historic Spokane did. Right. And then eventually, when it was proven to be a good idea, evolve into um, larger buildings made of brick or granite. Right. Um, the, the apartments around there didn't start out as you know single homes and then eventually add Get on to the back and yeah. yeah so it wasn't the organic process that i think is ideal for mm-hmm. cities um that said uh under the current environment that our developers and cities operate in uh, i don't know that there was a different way to do it okay so yeah. I, i'm qualifying that criticism a little bit um, the way that the way that development is financed now would not have it, it wouldn't have allowed for that. Right. The bankers, you know, when they're looking at the plan, if you had said, well, you know, we're going to start with just a couple of sh- pop up shops, it's just going to be basically shacks. Yeah. Uh, you you wouldn't you wouldn't get the loan for that. Right. Um, and it just in order to make it work in in this day and age. I recognize that there's a certain level of, you know, you have to build it to a finished stage just to make everybody happy. Right. Um, I don't think that's ideal. And I think that as, as a culture, we need to find alternative ways to, um, to make that work. Right. Um, what, if, if I were developing, if I were designing a process at the city to make something like Kendall Yards happen, um, and I don't, I don't actually know all of the details that went into that when it was first being developed. So maybe I'm mischaracterizing something. Um, I would, I would have loved for the city to purchase that land. I don't. Was it city-owned land? It was a rail yard, but I don't think it was city-owned. Uh, it was. I think they might. Somebody definitely owned because it was a brown field, mm-hmm. and so it was a super fun site. I don't. Oh man, that's a good question. Well, I, I would, I would have loved for the city or. Um, you know, whoever to, to purchase that site, pay for the necessary cleanups, whatever else had to happen. Right. Um, put in some, some, uh, basic infrastructure and subdivide those lots and sell them off one by one. Mm. 
um, rather than having one individual developer come in and totally yeah um, and it, like I said Spokane got lucky on that one I yeah. think I think that um, that Jim Frank did a pretty good job yeah uh, it's it's a pleasant community for walking in yeah uh, I think he he has a team around him that that is aware of those issues and they've they've made it a pleasant experience it's yeah. it's a good place um but the um the potential for that to go wrong was also there yeah absolutely and uh again it's easy to backcast and say well you know that worked out really well this time if we do more of that we're going to get more kindle yards yeah um i think we we shouldn't uh we shouldn't plan on that yeah. Um, whereas if you subdivide those lots and sell them off one by one, uh, that's something I think the city, that's an area where I think the city can control things to uh, improve outcomes. The lot, the, the width of the lot, I mean, we've talked about the financial um, mm -hmm. profitability of those uh, or the financial viability of those. But also just from an urban design standpoint, those narrower lots are more pleasant for walking along yeah. the street. It creates a whole host of, uh, of uh, ancillary benefits. Yeah. So having the city come in, knowing what that good urban design is, and then uh, dividing those lots accordingly and then selling them off, uh, you can then at that point sort of wash your hands of it and let, let private actors take over because you've, you've created the rules of the game yeah. that are going to create a beneficial outcome. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, and then you don't have to pay attention to things like urban design quite as carefully. Um, even if, you know, one or two owners of, of lots develop something that's truly hideous, uh, chances are that it just adds to the kind of eclectic mix along the street and sure. it ends up actually being um, maybe not endearing, but at least it doesn't destroy the experience. Whereas... Uh, you get one developer in there who makes some poor design decisions and you've kind of destroyed that whole, right. that whole area. Well, and that's like, that's sort of, but it also le leads, even in the case of, I mean, Kendall Yards did a pretty good job. And I think it seems like Jim Frank did the best he could to make, like he picked different architects for each building and, you know, just mm -hmm. to try to make it. But there is a, a bit of homogeneity in that. And then when you get out to like a traditional subdevelopment, you just see, you know, you see the, the worst, exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, cool, there's five floor plans. And because it's an HOA, you've got, you know, six colors of beige to choose from or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so that's interesting. So but then there's this other problem that we, that you sort of hinted at a little bit is like there's the financing part too. Mm -hmm. So it's like you got to get some. So even if you have these lots built the way you want them to be, and it's sort of meted out in a certain way that feels, you know, that feels like, you know, uh, you like you said creates the rules of the game that you want to be played. Then you've got somebody to finance it. You need to f then find somebody to still finance it, and that's this other part of the puzzle that. You complete, you know, that, that's maybe as much of a wild card as anything else. Because if people, are, if banks are used to, I mean, because banks probably want to hit home runs too. So banks are probably used to and very comfortable with huge subdevelopments because that's a rinse and repeat thing. You can do 150 times doing a construction loan yep. for the same, you know, and then it gets that that's, there's an allure to that complicated system because of how repeatable it is to build yep. and get that short term profit. But then it creates these long term. That's that's how you get the soft default. Yeah, 
there, so I have two thoughts, and um, let's see if I'll remember both of them by the time I get done talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the first is that um, there's a, there's an inherent trade off between efficiency and resiliency. Okay. Um, it's it is really efficient for one developer to go in and yeah. build all those buildings. It's yeah. really efficient for a bank for one bank to just go in and finance it. Yeah. Um, that uh, that does create benefits in the in the form of uh, less expensive construction um you know l less time required to construct there's all kinds of there's a reason that we moved in that direction mm -hmm. and part of that comes from our experience in world war ii where we uh very efficiently mobilized our army and all of our armed forces to go out and then win a war we took those lessons back and said well let's apply that same logic to building housing we've got all these gis that need to live somewhere it's like the ford model of home building exactly you know? it's like an assembly line um it is it is very efficient yeah. so if efficiency is your primary goal we've been doing it right the problem is that that efficiency creates structural um uh, structural uh fragility okay in the yeah. system right um when you go in and build that one neighborhood all at once the roofs all start to fail around the same time <laughs> The streets all start to fall apart at the same time. Right, yeah, you know the the yards start to look ratty and need need upkeep. There's all kinds. It all kind of happens at the same time, and um, that that tends to lead to this sort of uh, decline, rapid decline, and then rapid revitalization cycle that we see in our cities now. Mm. Um, so that's that's kind of my first thought. Uh, my second thought, coming back to um, governance structures uh, a lot of the way banks do things related to development come from uh, restrictions put on them by the federal government on what they can finance and what they can't oh, right. not necessarily restrictions but um, the federal government is a major player in housing finance through Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae okay, yeah. and they have sort of approved loan products and then loan products that they won't do an example um, and this actually has changed recently so it's uh, they're learning, and it's loosened up a bit. But okay. uh, if you own a small business, um, say say you uh, are the owner of Doyle's Ice Cream Shop, yeah, um, and you need to move to a new location that's a little bit bigger, um, but in order to save money, you want to build your house and your ice cream shop on the same. Like you want to have your ice cream shop on the ground floor. Yeah, you want to live your, above, yeah, and then your apartment above. That was a very common arrangement for our ancestors, right? Um, that financing would not have been available to you under federally insured mortgage hmm. uh, programs. Uh, now, they've loosened that a little bit. Now, I think as long as the commercial space does not exceed 50% of the floor space of the entire building, okay. then you can qualify. But still, there's, there's all these distortions that we've introduced to favor certain types of loan products over other types. <laughs> and the bottom line is, it is just way easier to stick with sort of the tried and true models because that's what our very efficient system is set up to service. Right. So uh, we have work to do at the local level to improve the way that we handle development. And we have work to do at, at higher levels to um, incentivize or, or make it easier. Or even to, allow, yeah. Yeah, just, just to allow it to happen. Wow, that's fascinating. 
All right, I've got like 10 minutes left. So I wanted to go through, I want to, we, I probably just need to have you back for another episode that's all about affordable housing. But you wrote a really great, um, it ended up being one of, it was chosen as one of uh, Strong Town's uh, best posts of 2017 called The Five Immutable Laws of Affordable Housing. And so you sort of lay out like five first principles of affordable housing that you sort of just take to be, these are, these are the facts that for, you know, and then which leads you to sort of three strategies. And so I just want to go through them real quick and then we can just talk. So the laws are developers don't pay the costs of construction, tenants and buyers do. That seems pretty, um, pretty self-evident. Housing demand is regional. Three, if your zoning and building code mandates expensive housing, housing will be expensive. Meaning that if you have all these like, spe- like specific rules that require, like actually one thing was there was talk that there were gonna, some cities have done this and Spokane considered putting like requiring like sprinkler systems in residential homes. Like mm-hmm. that would be something that would just make housing insanely expensive. Yep. Uh, for affordable housing isn't affordable if your transportation costs are too high. So you have to think about not just uh, the building itself, but where it's placed. And so are, do people have access to transit or whatever? Is it walkable as opposed to needing a car? Mm-hmm. And then today's affordable housing was last generation's luxury housing. Um, I want to ask if that's true in every case. Um, but out of those five laws, you sort of come up with three ideas. Uh, reduce minimum lot sizes and relax density restrictions in single-family zones. So basically, allow some of that, like the subdividing those mansions in Brown's edition maybe isn't the worst idea in the world. I think a lot when, when people think about revitalizing a neighborhood, they're like, oh, we got to take the, this, you know, 3,500 square foot mansion and get rid of the, turn that six unit apartment building back into a single family home. Uh, Two, fix your zoning. If buy right development is economically infeasible, you're creating artificial scarcity. That's a little jargony. You You might have to unpack that one for me. But then here's the other side, and you call this your barbell approach, I think is what you call it. Take a more active role in providing affordable housing. The city itself, take a more active role in providing affordable housing. So you have sort of like two market-based or like market-based ideas and then one that might be more seen as like a, uh, I don't know. If it's a non-market-based. Yeah, a non-market-based, uh, a public-funded. The, the communist way. The communist way, yeah. We're yeah. commies. Yeah, the commies. Um, I, I will point out, speaking of communists, that uh, um, we currently mandate minimum amounts of parking for Totally. Most kinds of development. Which actually, I think Jim Frank was really annoyed. He wanted those yep. streets in Kendall Yards to be narrower, but yep. they require, before we sort of changed the rules. So Kendall Yards has wider streets because of the parking requirements. Yep. So, and, you know, if Walmart goes out and builds their Walmart, they're not putting that parking, they're not putting that like 700, whatever stall parking lot because they want to. That's In a lot of cases, they're providing that because they're required to. That's In other words, we're uh, we're the communists when it comes to parking. Right. Um, so we 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 may yeah okay that's interesting okay keep going. But but you know for the uh, the red meat conservatives in your audience of which I'm sure there are many, <laughs> uh, I, that's one where Chuck likes to tweak the conservative side because people tend to think well yeah we need to you know cars are great let's let's make it easy to drive everywhere and um, actually that's government action that's sort of forcing that choice Absolutely. upon people. Right. Um, okay, so I, I got sidetracked there. Um, do you want me to talk about the uh, sort of the uh, the solutions or the uh, the approaches? Let's, yeah, or just the yeah, whole thing. Let's do that. Yeah, let's talk about the solutions. Uh, so you mentioned sprinklers as a right. something that adds to the cost of housing. 
but I think it goes deeper than that. Um, if I, uh, I haven't looked at the zoning on the South Hill for a while, uh, but I'm guessing that in most neighborhoods, South, South Hill's sort of an expensive area. It's very, very desirable. Right. Um, if I looked at a, a property there, say I found a house that was, you know, it wasn't totally dilapidated, but wasn't in like super great shape. Sure. Uh, the zoning there is probably single family home. Right. Meaning you cannot build anything but a standalone single family home. So if I, as a, um, a developer or maybe even just an interested resident who's looking for a way to um, reduce how much it costs for me to live there, if I went in and said, you know, I, I'd really like to buy that property, tear down the existing home, which has sort of used it, served its useful life and was not maintained very well over the last few years, and I want to put in a very small, like six unit, say maybe like a three-story, six-unit apartment building. Sure. Something that's like common around the South Hill too. Like you, there. Mm -hmm. I lived in a three, a six-unit, three-story building right. on Eleventh and Oak. Right. Um, that in a lot of places is not allowed. Huh. Um, the uh, there are a lot of benefits to allowing something like that to happen. Like I said, uh, if I wanted to live on South Hill and I felt like I couldn't afford it. That's one way you can make that happen because you're able to live in one of the units. You rent out the other five to help finance the um, the debt to build the building. Um, our, li our little 1923 two-unit townhouse was owner-occupied for the yeah. first 20 years of its existence, and that was not un that was not an uncommon thing. Huh. It uh, it was it was uh, yeah that was seen as a um, a perfectly reasonable way to. Um, afford to build the house that you wanted to build in the neighborhood you wanted to build it in, in the neighborhood you wanted to build it in. Um, and it is demonstrably true that those, each of those units in the six unit building would be less expensive than the one single family home. Absolutely. Maybe it's a $300,000 single family home where each of the condo units in that six unit building might go for 150, 200,000. I don't know. I, I totally. haven't looked at the market, but uh, anyway, the point is you're then, You've um, there are benefits to the the person who lives there who who can make that work financially. Right. There's a benefit to the city because you've increased the uh, the value of that property, which then increases the tax that's coming into the city, without adding additional infrastructure. Um, you've provided more housing in a neighborhood where people want to live. Yeah. So those other five people are not going to be bidding up prices on apartments elsewhere in the neighborhood. Um, all of that to say, uh, when we exclude things like apartments from neighborhoods, we're mandating expensive housing. Right. So to the extent there's an affordability crisis on South Hill, for example, uh, it, is, it is a complex phenomenon. There's not one single cause, but a part of that problem is that we've restricted the supply of housing hmm. in that neighborhood. Um, so that's what I meant. Uh, that That's w when I say it kind of goes deeper. That's part of what I'm talking about. Got it. Um, and there are lots of ways in which we make housing more expensive than it needs to be. Parking is another example, especially if you're building apartment buildings, developers are required to put in parking. Right. It turns out if you're building, for example, well, downtown here doesn't actually have parking requirements, I think, but if you're building an apartment building on South Hill, 
you're going to be required to put either underground parking, which mm-hmm. is fantastically expensive, yep. or reserve some portion of the lot for a parking lot. There are all these little town, sort of up-down townhouse units in, that are going up in Perry, and they all mm-hmm. have garages on the first floor, which kind of, it's just a weird way to yep. in, get into a house. Yeah. Yep. We spend a lot of time worrying about how to house our cars <laughs> and not enough time worrying about how to house human beings. Uh, wow. That's, jeez. Uh, that, um, that, that quote might be the title of the episode. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the, let, let me remind myself of what these are. Um, oh, housing demand is regional. So I, it doesn't, I don't think it, it affects us here in Spokane quite as much, um, because there's the city itself as a share of the metro area is still a pretty large portion of the metro area, sure. but you get into some places, uh, Bay area is a, a great example, um, in California where, a, a small little suburban community outside of San Francisco uh, does not, it, it has no incentive to increase its housing supply hmm. uh, because they might increase their housing supply, but the next communities over aren't going to do a thing. And so what that does is it creates this um, like tidal wave of development oh, interesting. That, that that's going to suck up any capacity that's made available for a community Hmm. um so uh if you are restricting the um the flip side of that is if you're a suburb that like down zones your area so that you only allow for single family homes right you're not you're not deterring people from moving to the region there are still jobs there that people want yeah there's still you know people that want to move into the to the region all you've done is just shut out newcomers from your one little area right um, and as a result, then the the house or the housing prices throughout the region are going to be increased by some amount because you've restricted the supply. Mm-hmm. Um, the the today's affordable housing was the last generation's luxury housing. Yeah. So you asked if that's true in all cases. Um, it's not. Okay. Um, San Francisco is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, that that is not affordable housing anymore. Um, it, it more refers to a, a phenomenon called filtering, okay. um, which is it's a known thing. I mean, you can observe it. Yeah. But in a, in a functioning neighborhood, in a in a sort of a, in its natural state, uh, as you build housing, it starts off as high quality, you know, latest and greatest. Well, it's new, housing. yeah, totally new appliances, new everything. Yeah. And then over time, um, as the systems start to wear out and as the materials start to degrade. Um, and as new, you know, better options become available, that housing then sort of filters downward mm-hmm. on the ladder of housing. Right. Um, it's not true in all cases, uh, but it it should be a part of our strategy for um, making housing affordable. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is uh, the decisions we make now will affect the affordability of our community 30, 40 years from now. Right. And a, a large part of why we're seeing problems now with affordability we didn't do is it. that 30 and 40 years ago, we were uh, preventing people from building apartments, basically. Right. We sort of froze these neighborhoods in amber and said, we don't want you to change at all. Mm-hmm. So they didn't change. And now all of a sudden, we our, our housing market is totally out of balance because right. we didn't re- really let it 
uh, evolve in a natural fashion. Well, it seems like we're really it's really exacerbated now because there's we have kind of a, a an influx of people who are sort of maybe they're catching those middle tier houses or things that should be maybe going to the bottom of the market aren't going there because people are snatching them up and yep. and Gu- it, guilty as charged. <laughs> I'm one of the newcomers. Well, and I'm cognizant. One, well, I, I was th- I was reflecting on this because of how like I bought my house in 09 when, and it, because it was a commercial duplex at the time, it was literally like there were 200 duplexes on the market because every realtor in town who had an income property had to, cause nobody was selling houses. So they had to, you know, yep. uh, I think about the way my home's value has appreciated. Like I could not, I don't know that I can afford my house that I cur- that I bought nine, 10 years ago today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and so I think then what does that do to people who are, you know, further down the housing ladder than I am? And th- so that's why I thought it was your, your barbell analogy was really great. So it was like, you want to sort of restrict or you want to sort of write the, the proper rules for the sort of the market-based incentives for the, that high end. Cause you're right. Every, why wouldn't you, if you were a developer, why would you why would you sort of not go for the top of the market every time? It just makes sense. And newer houses just go for more money anyway. So that's just sort of a truism. But then that also doesn't seem like filtering alone is going to get what we need done accomplished for even workforce housing, let alone like low income housing. Yeah. So part of it is that we're now dealing with uh, 30 and 40 years of poor decisions that are now visiting upon us with housing crisis while now all of a sudden also people want to move here too so it's exacerbating it and so uh market-based solutions alone are just not going to solve that entirely i think we need to harness the power of the market to solve those problems to the extent that we can but also recognize that it has its limitations um part of what i was thinking about i don't remember how much detail i went into in the article um we have this cultural aversion to um having government just do things that right. it can do well. Right. Um, and I've sort of talked about my hierarchy of where I think it makes sense for government to be more involved. Yeah. Um, I, instead of having the government get involved, what we tend to do is we tend to approve of things like uh, tax incentives or roundabout ways to provide money for building affordable housing without just having the city take that on. Right. And I'm not suggesting that the city should become a developer necessarily, but um, there has to be more straightforward ways to fund affordable housing yeah. that don't involve the smoke and mirrors of you know grant programs or and well maybe a grant program is actually a decent idea, but the tax subsidies and the um, you know whatever other sort of incentives the city yeah. tries to throw at the problem, right. it ends up. Uh, the, the the impact ends up being doled by the fact that we haven't just gone in and done it. Yeah. You know? So I'm not sure what that looks like for the city. Like I said, I'm not saying the city needs to become a developer. Right. But I feel like there are more direct ways that the city could just get involved yeah. in building affordable housing. Well, I, again, one of those lefty uh, podcasts that I listen to, uh, there was, you know, there there are these horror stories, mostly from like the '80s, around the the problems of housing projects, like Cabrini Green and places in in New York and Chicago and what, St. Louis. But actually, and again, I'm not. This is all extemporaneous, so I don't remember any of the data stuff. The, the majority of housing projects in places like Florida and other cities, like, actually, are still pretty functional. And then when you go over to 
uh, Europe, socialized housing is just kind of like normal and not that big of a deal. And yep. it's it tends to be a percentage of income based or something like that where, and if it's built nice enough, it, and the, you end up getting a pretty interesting and natural mix of income levels because they're pretty nice places. And so you get relatively wealthy people actively living in these cool little communities subsidizing the people that can't afford to pay as much and it actually helps with community cohesion in a way that I would it's cool that you're interested in thinking in ways like that because I I haven't heard that talked about in Spokane and so maybe this conversation can start a larger one or something I don't know if anybody listens to this podcast (laughs) if you're listening please uh, start a conversation for us (laughs) Um, I, I think, uh, now I'm losing my train of thought. Um, another, I, th- I think another example of the city getting involved directly would be to provide some form of voucher. Yeah. Maybe not for the, the total cost of housing and maybe it's income based or whatever. But, uh, again, we kind of, we kind of throw that responsibility on the developer and try to provide incentives to make yeah. it make sense, to make right. it pencil out for them. Right. I'd rather just let the developers go loose. That's where the market really makes sense. Unleash the developers to just build lots of housing because that's what we need when there are people that want to move here. Um, And then have the city provide the the assistance to the renters to then go out and rent that housing. Um, That's probably overly uh, an overly simple response, but I'd like to see more of that kind of thinking in our conversation. Right. and yeah, it just it doesn't really seem to be a part of things currently. That's fascinating. All right, well, I think we've got to leave it there. We're at an hour and thirty-seven minutes, so this was every bit the marathon that we worried it might be. But it was really, really awesome, man. Thank you so much. It was great to get to know you a little bit better. We kind of sit within fifteen feet of each other, and this is easily the longest. We wave, as we yeah, we <laughs> yeah. You come in on your bike, and I mostly walk, and so I feel like we're doing our part in that way. But it's also great. I think having these conversations, especially, I mean, we can't, you know, undo 40 years of bad decisions, but maybe we can start having conversations that'll make, you know, our grandkids, uh, the city they live in a little bit more sort of choiceful and and better for everybody. So thanks so much. That's it for this week, everyone. This episode was produced entirely by me, which is why you hear me spend so much time thanking Connor and Kayla and Brendan most weeks. So, uh, and you should thank them too. They're going to return next week. I promise you make sure to check the show notes. I put a link to Spencer Gardner's writings in strong towns. He has used Spokane as a case study in a number of his essays and they're really great. So it's, you know, abstract planning talk contextualized for our actual city, which is cool. So check them out. If you like range, you can support us at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. And we'll leave it at that. This has been a long one. Hopefully you got something out of it. Send me an email either way. If you have or you haven't, luke at rangemedia.co. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next time.